Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Grid with Michael Acevedo. Michael's a poker pro with over $2 million in online caches. He's a renowned coach at GTO Poker, and he's an author of a really incredible book, Modern Poker Theory, Building an Unbeatable Strategy Based on GTO Principles. Today, he brings a really fascinating twist on our grid as he takes a two soft suit. Thank you, because not that many people play that hand. And it's not actually one of his hands. It's one of Stevie Chidwick's hands. Tell us a little bit about, um, first of all, thank you, Michael, for joining us. And tell us a little bit about how you ended up choosing this hand. Oh, hi, Jennifer. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be part of the grid. And hello, everyone. Well, um, the hand is something that I have a very good memory of. Uh, It basically marks a change in my poker career. And it's a hand that was played by a friend of mine, Stephen Chidwick. It was maybe some five years ago or something that um, I was lucky enough to get invited by Ape Styles, Jump and Flip Ape Styles, to his study group where he was going weekly over uh, Will Tipton's expert heads up, not even holding book. They were studying this book uh, chapter by chapter weekly. So he invited me with less than a week advance time. I was playing something like $20 average buying tournaments back then. So I was uh, just getting started uh, online. I had been playing online for like six months or something. I was lucky because I think John got fun of me. Uh, We got along well. I showed him that I was also interested in GTO in our first coaching session. And I don't know, he just invited me to this uh, study group. I had to study the five chapters. They have already read of the book in advance in one week time frame. And the book is very math heavy. Uh, luckily for me, I'm a physicist. So I didn't really have much problems with the equations and all of the, you know, the, the, the things that were very advanced in the book. And then I also had to learn how to use Cardrunner CV, which was the software we're using to study back then before the solvers and all of this. Long story short, I was invited to the to the group, and I was very shy, and I, I didn't speak much. For, I spoke much for most of the uh, the session, but towards the end, these guys were studying a hand played by Stephen Chidwick, which is the A12 suit. He defended from the big blind with A12 suit against a button open race. Back then, I think uh, against the main race, um, we were just defending like everything. Uh, that's <laughs> how it was played. Um, just get so many such great odds you're getting, you know, at, at back then, top breakers were defending pretty much everything uh, from the big numbers of the bottom. So he defended A2 offsuit, and the flop was something like 
uh, queen eight x, queen eight three, no, queen eight seven, perhaps, yeah, something like that. I cannot recall the hand exactly as it played because it, it was just so long ago. But the bottom line is that he check call flop, check call turn, and then folded the river when everything bricked uh, with second pair. And I just made, I just said out loud, I think if you're folding there, you're folding way too much. And everyone went silent uh, on the call. There was also Ilya Fox, I think, uh, Stephen Chidwick, uh, Ape Styles. Maybe I think Ryan Doubt was also invited, but I'm not sure if he was that day there. So it was pretty sick style group, which I was part of. I mean, I was absolutely nobody. And I was, you know, <laughs> just playing $20 MTTs. And I'm there talking out loud about a hand that Stevie played in a $2,000 tournament. And well, everybody went silent. Then I don't know, somebody changed the topic and the call ended. And I was like, oh man, I feel like I, I messed up some, something here. And then Stevie added me on Skype. Uh, we started chatting about the hand. He went to bed because it was very late night. Then I stayed up. I did all the math by hand. And then I just sent him the results. He plugged everything into Cardone CV. Uh, the next day, and when I woke up, I had a message from him saying, "You were right. It, it, it was uh, it, it was a call, and I will give you some assignments for next week." And I was like, "What? So assignments for next week? So that means that I'm invited next week to this study group, these guys." So man, it was super exciting for me because yeah, I was just getting started. I was playing uh, you know low stakes MTTs online. And just I, I just had my first study session with Ape Styles, and his coaching was like $215 the hour back then. And I couldn't afford it. It, just, it was my backer who paid for it, you know. And so I was so excited. And this hand just marks, you know, a, a shift for my poker career because then I started going, you know, weekly with these guys, attending to their sessions, seeing how they think about the game. Then Pio Solberg was released and Stevie was one of the first guys who got it. So as a, after we finished reading the book, we started getting weekly so that we could toy with Stevie, you know, with Pio Solberg. And I was actually the last guy in the group who was able to purchase the software because it was like $500, the basic license, something like that. And I didn't have that money. I just didn't have $500 to buy the software, right? So first thing I did um, when I had something like a third place in uh, the big eight for something like $3,000, I, I purchased Pio Solberg. And then the next biggest score I had, I shipped the big 22 for like 10K and I bought a $10,000, no, a $5,000 computer <laughs> with half the money that I won so that, that I was going to be able to run simulations. So I was the last, the last guy in the group to get the Solberg and the computer to be able to run the stuff. But I just fell so deep into it that I just um, have not stopped running simulations and investigating and doing stuff for years. And while well, I kept working with them, we then, after I got the solver, we gave sort of assignments uh, of different spots to each other that we will run weekly. We will produce these articles, right? When we will go over spots in a very in-depth detail with the solver, getting screenshots, all of that, and we just shared it with the group. And that kept going for a long time until eventually the group dissolved because we were everyone in different time zones and we couldn't uh, get together. And yeah, it just eventually it fell apart. But 
it was such a great starting uh, experience for me. I just changed everything massively. And all, it all got started with the hand, the A2 also that is to be played in that tournament. Amazing, amazing. You know, when you first messaged me about this hand, um, I I do know um, I do know Stevie, and of course he's, for those of you who don't know, who are um, poker fans listening to this, of course he's one of the, the greatest players, both live online. Yeah, he's a sicko, um, absolutely. Like him uh, and, and Ape Style, John Van Fleet are amazing. Like Elio Fox also, like these guys, all of them uh, play super high rollers and stuff like that. I was very lucky. I think I was very lucky to have the opportunity to um, study with them. And also that they like uh, the way you think about the game. Uh, and the, I had the opportunity to connect with them. Yeah. And the way that you present things too in your book, I can understand the the reason that why they wanted you in, in the group. But okay, before we move on, I do want to go back to the hand just a little bit because you, you say that Stevie was on the button. This was a six max 2K sit and go yeah are you saying it was down to heads up or he was actually the button and there were two blinds i think there were still three players or something yeah it, it was big blind versus button it wasn't that heads up and he defended i think uh he just called against the main race uh, on the big line right i'm not 100 percent sure uh because it was so long ago i just recall that um it was second pair on a queen high board with the a2 and everything bricked in particularly the a2 combination that he had had the two spades that uh, didn't block the flush draws and um, didn't block the straight draws. So calling with the A2 was actually a better call than calling with something uh, with a better kicker. It would have any a better kicker because it would block the straight draws and flush draws that means that that bricked. So this A2 particularly was a pretty good combination to call off the river with. And that's also something that is interesting because very early on, um, before I really got into solvers, I already kind of have this understanding of, you know, blockers and stuff that uh, is high advanced in not many people were, were thinking this way like five years ago. Now, a lot of people do it because of the solvers. But back then, uh, I think also that kind of thinking is what helped me, uh, you know, understand the, the game at a deeper level and also work with these guys. Understood. So it was like a queen eight seven. It must have been for eight to remain second pair. I guess it must have been three four, right? Something that three. It must have been queen eight seven three four three five something like that. Yeah. A really unique run out in that um, no no overcards to the eight and so queen eight seven three four and some kind of busted spade flush draw. And explain what you mean about why you'd rather have like eight deuce than like eight ten or eight nine. You have the 8-9 or 8-10 uh, or even some 8-6. It will block some of the straight or combinations that your opponent will be bluffing across three streets. Also, uh, he had the spade and he, okay, I think the turn also bring a back for flusher. So I think it was diamonds and hearts. And he had the, the 8 um, with the two spades, which didn't block any of the flushers. So in hindsight, it ended up being one of the best 8x to call in that run out in that situation. Yeah. So he had like just a, a deuce of clubs and an eight of spades or something like that. You didn't have card runners EV. Was it again? Because you said they were using CREV. By the way, I did use CREV back in the day and I actually kind of miss it because <laughs> it's it was very visual in my mind. And I think it forced you to put in so many inputs that I, I don't know, I felt like it really helped you kind of uh, get a good understanding of what was going on. If I recall correctly, you really had to put in a lot of inputs, like even more than you would with Pio. Oh yeah, that's the difference. Um, Cardano CB is a high input 
low output uh, software and pure solver is the opposite it's low input and high output so with pure solver you kind of only have to put in the ranges and the bed sizes and it will let you just try across all the three streets and card runners you have to build the ranges for betting for racing for calling the race for rejamming like how many different decision points you have in the simulation you have to put the ranges yourself and have to be balanced i think for us who were like you know old school and work with that software it actually helped uh, understanding the, the the game for sure at a deeper level but as a regularly study tool pure solver is of course much more efficient right yeah card runners ev you could take you like a long time to just run one hand like in this example Hours. but then by the end you would have a very strong understanding of both the theory and the exploits yeah, and also a good thing about card runners is that it helps you also understand exploitative play much better, right? Because you you can mess out mess around with the bill and range. So you're like, okay, what happens if he's calling, you know, a little bit less frequently here? You know, how much higher be my plus become, or you know, it was helpful. But spending so much time with it, when now you can just spend a couple minutes in a solver like PO solver and then run it and get so many more answers. Uh, it is much more efficient. It was good, but I, I, yeah, I wouldn't go back. And I don't even know if you can, because I did miss the CREV a lot of ways. And I, I think I went back, I think it, it kind of merged with like GTO Plus. I think they're like the same program now. Does that sound correct to you? It's not the same because you can still get Cardrunner CV. Uh, I still have it on my computer. Uh, but the creator also created GTO Plus. GTO Plus is another solver, which is actually pretty good. It's like 75 bucks and it's a complete solver. It's pretty cheap and it has all the main features most people will ever need. Yeah, and that would have been something that back in those days, if it had existed, instead of having to put down the 500 bucks and the 5,000 soon thereafter, that might have that might have helped someone like you out. So you didn't even have Cardrunner's EV because you uh, presumably you hadn't bought it yet. So you had to do this eight deuce offsuit math by hand. Like, how would you go about doing it by hand? What I did was the, uh, basically doing the math using minimal defense frequencies and across all three streets and just getting to see how much of, of his TV range should he have been defending on the flop turn and river. And then getting by the river and giving those numbers to Stevie, he plugged that into Cardrunner CV. And yeah, we came to the conclusion that the A2 was one of the best hands. Also, the EV of that particular combo was the highest because of the blocker effect. That's basically what happened. I didn't have Cardrunner CV before my first study session with Ape Styles. Uh, he told me if I wanted to be part of his study group, he invited me just as a listener for the first time. He actually said this, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I will do it regardless. If you can read and study the first five chapters of Tipton's book in one week and also learn how to, how to use Cardrunner CV in a week, then you are invited. I was like, hell yeah, I'm 100% doing this. And I downloaded the book on Kindle immediately. And I also I didn't play poker or do anything else during the week. And every day I would be reading the book. I was taking notes. And I would send those notes to Ape Styles so that he will see that I was actually putting in the work. And that's something that I think is really important. When you want to get good at something, it could be chess, uh, it could be poker, it could be anything in life. You have to be willing to put in the hours, to put in the work. And some people, even though they might be very talented, 
they don't have this this drive to really put in the work, to put in the hours. That's what really makes the difference at the end of the day. And I think why these guys also like me. And also, I'm very structured. My way of thinking is very methodical and, and mathematical. So I'm very good at structuring data and at making sense of things. And that also shows in my book. And actually, the book is kind of, uh, you know, what evolved from my thinking process and in my experience with this study group with these guys because this is actually what we were doing on a daily basis just writing articles about some specific spots and then sharing the data in a very efficient way and well Stevie was very good also at structuring his uh, articles and sharing the data and I was also very good and I evolved you know by learning with these guys okay how can I present the data how can I organize this so that it is better understood by my teammates and how can I teach them also how to standardize the articles that we are writing to each other so that we all can, you know, exchange the data in a more efficient way. And all of this helped me in, in that way. Then coaching, I've also been doing coaching for like five years. And all of this just evolved into me understanding the way poker actually works. And at a deeper level, it's very difficult. The game of poker is something that is massive, absolutely massive, and put everything that is so complex into you know, a 480 pages book and makes sense of all of it. It was a very tough work, but I'm very glad that I, I, that I did it. And it fascinates me that you used articles because I think one of the struggles that some people have with um, solvers is that they get all this, uh, this overwhelming amount of information about a hand and you know, without actually explaining it to yourself in words, like much of it might lose your attention. So you actually like wrote paragraphs and combined that with like screenshots. Is that how it worked? Yeah. What we did was take a spot. Let's say we were going to study some ace high 20 big blanks, billion versus bottom continuation betting situation. So you just run the simulations mm -hmm. and then you take the screenshots for the ranges for both players in position, out of position, and you start to break it down. Uh, what hands are being continuation bet here? What hands are being checked back? Uh, what hands are, well, actually in ace high boards, you can just bet your range, but just an example. Any board, you can just uh, break it down into what hands are being checked back, what hands are being bet, what bet size is being preferred. Also, um, using multiple bet sizes at first, then we will just cut down the simulation, remove the bet sizes that were not used as much and make notes and the key points like, okay, in this situation, the preferred bed size is large, the preferred bed size is small, uh, this is a high speed frequency spot, what type of hands like to check the flop, what type of hands like to bet the flop, and what is the difference? So why this type of hand X likes to bet and hand uh, you know Z, which is similar, now wants to check what, what makes the difference here? So you can start to break it down at a very deep level and then just make notes share everything with the team. And, you know, that's how we learned. And it was super, super helpful because we had like four or five, you know, very bright people, great poker players putting in, you know, this type of work weekly and sharing to the team. That was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Because as you explore in your book, there are, and you also refer to Tipton's books in this way as well, where you talk about the difficulty of figuring out how many flop subsets you have to study and certainly tackling them as a group would be a lot easier if you if you want to get through them in a in a year or so as um you you came to the conclusion that there was at least 350 um Tipton's book tried to argue that you could get by with 100 and you thought that that was too few so is that a conclusion that you came to working with this book that you felt like you needed to look at a large number of flops so that you wouldn't accidentally 
give principles that don't really apply. At the end of, for the book and for my personal study, what I ended up doing is using all flops. So the total game is com- composed by 22,100 flops. If you remove some of the, um, the suit effects, uh, this is called... Um, isomorphic. Isomorphic effect, yeah. If you remove the isomorphic flops, for example, the ace-king-queen of clubs is basically the exact same flop as the ace-king-queen of diamonds spades. So all of these flops, they are the exact same. So if you run the simulations for just one of them, you have the solution for all the other ones because, you know, uh, you can just change clubs for spades and that's it. You have the flush or you have the flush or whatever. So We aren't spades better than clubs? No. (laughs) (laughs) In some games, in some games, yeah. Thank goodness um, that uh, you, that this rule applies because otherwise the grid would be a much more difficult project. <laughs> I'm only doing 169 hands on the grid. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So once you remove those redundancies uh, from the isomorphic flops, you can reduce the game to 1,755 flops, which is still a lot, right? It's still a lot. Uh, but then I found um, many ways to categorize and organize the data. Uh, making flops families, for example, textures. We have, you know, flops that are monotone, so a single suit. Flops that are two-tone with two of, of a suit. Flops that are rainbow. Uh, flops that are trips with three of a kind. Uh, pair boards that have a pair on it. And then you can, you know, further break those down into other stuff like high cards. So you have flops that are uh, ranked ace high, king high, queen high. Then um, I also create some other categories for like family. So you have flops that have a high card, uh, high card meaning a card 10, jack, queen, king, or a middle card, uh, six, seven, eight, nine, a low card, two, three, four, five. And then you have the ace, which is kind of a wild card. And so once you can see that flops belong into a family or subcategory, it is easier to study. For example, let's say you study a flop like ace-5-2, right, uh, in a continuation betting situation. Okay, then a flop ace-4-3 or ace-4-2 or ace-2-3 is very similar. Like this strategy you play in these boards is not going to be massively different. So you kind of only have to study one of them again because, you know, you just study this family and then the other flops in the family are going to be so similar. And then there are other uh, things that are important. For example, flops that have two possible flop straights, only one possible flop straight or zero possible flop straights that changes massively the strategy in some situations where the big blind can contain all of the combinations that make these offsuit straights. So that gives the big blind such a different range of strong hands that he can have that the in-position player cannot have, particularly if he's opening from early position. So all of these things affect the, uh, the output and the strategies in the game. And then if you try to reduce the game from the 1,755 flops to, let's say, only 100 flops, it's almost impossible to have to cover all of the possibilities, like all the high ranks and all of the possible flush row and monotone and trips combinations and then flops with all of the possible number of flop straights and also make sure that most of the ranges can make enough sets and all of this. So it is almost an impossible task to do to reduce the game tree from much more than, uh, than this. So what I did was to just run all the flops. I get like I was able to rent a lot of servers online, and at some point I think I had twelve or fourteen servers running stuff simultaneously for pre-flop and post-flop. 
and ended up with thousands and thousands and thousands of GTL solutions. Then I just, what I did was to aggregate the data, put all of that into a database, and then categorize it with the flop categories and groups, uh, families that I just mentioned. And with that, I was able to create some very uh, interesting charts that visually show you the strategies across different types of boards. And I put all of that in the book. So you ran all the flops, but then when people study them, they look at fewer than all of them. They look at a few hundred. Is that is that what you came up with? Yeah. In most ace high boards, when you are like 20 big blinds, you can just bet your range. You can continuation bet your range, right? For example. Now that's some data that I have because I run all of the flops, right? So I can filter all of them in the database and be like, okay, I want to see ace high boards continuation betting. How often uh, is the in-position player betting here with, let's say, 20 people in Spielman versus Bolton? Okay, it looks like I can bet range or close to range in all of them. So that immediately gives me an insight. I don't have to see each one of the ace high flops in this particular scenario because I have the simulations for all of them. Aggregate the data and, be the, and see the average continuation betting. And maybe the average across all of the ace high boards is 95% continuation bet. So you can just basically bet your range and you will be good. For example, another uh, nice heuristic you can get from this is, let's say, monotone boards, right? Monotone boards, let's say the flop is uh, three hearts. And then turns out that the solver mostly likes to use a very small bet size, like 25% pot or min bets or one third pot. So now I know that by aggregating the data of all of the flops that are monotone, I can confidently mostly bet small I don't have to be thinking um, in this individual spot like so much into the, okay, be, be, and be confused like, okay, should I bet big? Should I bet small? I already know that I should be betting small. So then it's just a matter of figuring out which parts of my range are betting. And so trying to find this type of general rules that apply to much wider situations is kind of the goal. Not going for the granular stuff, which is what a lot of people do when they study with solvers. They look at one flop and they try to extrapolate the data from one single situation to a much wider range. It doesn't work that way because some flops will be different than others and have different characteristics. But when you look at them as a group, you know, you're putting in a group of family of flops that have similar characteristics and you study this, this family and you can come up with these sort of, you know, general rules or heuristics that, that you can just apply in game and it just becomes part of your arsenal when you're playing. Absolutely. And you, um, you know, usually I ask people on the grid when they have a hand to go back in time and think about how the hand would be played differently today. So taking a trip down memory lane of queen seven, eight and the, the two tone flop, would this hand have played differently today? First of all, the big line, would they have defended the eight through sauce? No, probably no. No, I think back then good regulars were defending like pretty much everything. I remember seeing South one, two, three defending seven, two offsuit in a cash game or not in a tournament, an entity against under the gun. And he's, you know, just calling everything. So yeah, it's not surprising that, you know, this high-level regs were doing this because we didn't have solvers and they were just constantly putting in the work, trying new things. And yeah, you, you're getting such a good price to call even with a worse, it, it, um, a terrible hand like A2 offsuit from the big blind. But now we understand that equity realization is a very important factor. So even though you're getting like 4 to 1 on the call pre-flop with just such a terrible hand, it doesn't mean that you will be able to realize of that equity and capture the portion of the pot that uh, theoretically belongs to you given the equity that your hand has. Because in most flops, you will flop such a little piece or nothing 
that in your opponent range is much, much stronger than yours, that he can apply so much pressure. So even if you flop like a middle pair, sometimes you will not be able to get to the to the showdown with his hand. And sometimes, let's say, for example, you have something like A2, 7-2. You were all in pre-flop, right? If you were calling for your tournament live, whatever, you know, you, you only have one more big win. So you're calling the min risk for an all-in. Then you can call because now, even if your opponent has uh, like, uh, I don't know, ace-king and the flop comes ace-xx, you can backdoor into two pairs, backdoor to trips, right? And that way you will realize your equity. But if you just call to see the flop and then your opponent puts a small bet in an ace high board, king high board, and you have nothing, you have to fold. Even if your opponent also has nothing, you just now have to fold your ace, your eight high, your you know seven high, and you will not be able to get to the turn and river that would have improved your hand. And this is why it is different to call when you have the immediate odds when you are all in compared to when you are not all in because you will be forced off your equity at a very high frequency post-flop. And that's why um, eight deuce would have been folded today. It was an Annie game, I assume. So at least, yeah. so it was an Annie. It was a 2K sit and go with Annie's, but still eight deuce, not good enough. In fact, I just for fun, I was scouring your book for other examples of eight deuce off because you have so many charts in your book. It's really beautifully designed, which I want to get into in a minute as well. But really the main part that eight deuce comes up in is because it does fall into that narrow range of hands that are folded even in an ante game folded to the small blind eight deuce is just in that you know 13 to 20 percent of hands that go into the mock but it does have a starring role in some surprising big blind isolations i guess yeah (laughs) that's one of yeah, it's one of the good ones to raise when the small blind calls. When the small blind calls uh, in a blind versus blind situation, uh, when you have antis involved in a tournament, then the big blind wants to raise a very polarized range that includes a lot of trash hands. So you can start to raise stuff like, yeah, A2 offsuit, 7-2, 9-2, a lot of these very trashy uh, 10-4, you know, jack-3 type of hands. Because in these situations, when the, the blind is going to be limp re-jamming a lot, for example, with you know medium and small stacks. You want to have a hand that it doesn't matter if your opponent limb jams, you fold. You're like, okay, I have A2, I raise, he jams, okay, I fold. It doesn't, doesn't matter, right? You don't want to be racing with a high equity hand. You don't want to be racing with an eight, nine suited because then your opponent re-jams for 30 people and so you're like, oh no, now I have to fold my hand. It's a pretty hand, I want to see the flop. So if it's a hand that is good enough for you to want to see the flop, and you don't want to be pushed off your equity, it's good for you to just check it back and then raise a, a more polarized range that includes hands that you're happy to raise call and hands that you're happy to raise fold against a regem. Exactly. And that's why you you had those big bars um, representing about, I think it was about 50 to 60% of the A through soft, and especially in the shallower ranges, like the 25 big blind limp ranges. You were showing these charts that showed just a, a surprising to many amount of ISOs with the eight deuce, nine deuce off. And then when you got to like eight, six, there was more checking going on, as you mentioned, because you didn't really want to take the eight, six off, which has a lot of potential to make straights and straight draws and raise it and then get jammed on and obviously have to fold. Surprisingly, the big blind is supposed to raise blind versus blind something like 40% of the time, even more than that. And most players won't do it. Like most players will just be checking back happily all of these trashy hands and they only raise you with the good hands. For example, it's a strike that you can develop against weaker players who are not isolating from the big blind enough. You can just limp everything. 
because now they allow you to take the flop for very cheap and you get to even realize your equity with hand as bad as eight two offsuit from the small blind because they will not be raising pre-flop. They will let you just let you take the flop. And then you get to realize a ton of your equity for very cheap. And then you can even just bluff them post-flop a lot of the time as well because they are not going to be defending as much. That's another uh, kind of general rule that you can apply right there. When you know that your opponent is not isolating from the big line 40% or even close to it, leave everything. That is trash. You don't care. You know, he just will allow you to realize your equity. And since he's not raising enough, then your slow plays are not necessary because he will not be putting enough money when you leave limp trapping with tens or jacks. So race instead. Don't, don't let him, you know, check back with his trashy hands because now he's, that's what he's going to do. So when you know these exploits, when you know this equilibrium strategy that allows you to implement exploitation right there immediately without even having to think so much about the spot. And, you know, I should point out, guys, that um, these ranges are based on a, a full ring MTT with the 12.5% ante. Um, of course, there would be a, a lot different if it was just like a heads up game and it was actually two players and or, or even three big blind ante. But anyway, um, I want to move on to more questions about your book. It really was quite beautifully done. Can you tell us a little bit about the visual aspect of poker learning? Because there were so many charts in your book. And as a coach and as an educator, it must be very important to you being able to show people these poker theory visually. I think the human being is a very visual animal. Our eyes evolve in a way that uh, vision is particularly important for us. And that's how we learn a lot. I studied physics and I'm, I'm always uh, being drawn to, you know, charts, the data. I have a certification in something called Six Sigma, uh, which certifies me as an expert in process improvement for financial services. And this Six Sigma uh, for process improvement, we uh, use a lot of charts to present data to management, right? So you just turn financial data that is a bunch of columns with numbers into beautiful, you know, charts that can be understood for non-mathematicians, right? And that's uh, something that goes along very well with um, with this. So when I first started working with these guys doing um, these private articles for our team, I immediately started to think, okay, you know, what are better ways to represent the data to make things easier? And I have been thinking about this for a long time. So when I was approached by um, Jonathan Little and DMB Poker, to write a theory book. Uh, they were looking for an expert in game theory to write a, a new book. And my name popped out somewhere because I have been uh, now doing some private articles for other high-level profile players. After the group I ended, I know, kind of became this guy who would be uh, doing these private articles for high-level guys. They'll be contacting me for you know studying a specific spot mentioning something like, you know what, I need to know uh, this, I don't know, 40 big blinds, cutoff versus bottom situation, how to approach it, how to play it, you know, in a balanced manner. Can you do a report, something for me? I'll be, you know, I'll be like, hell yeah, I can do it. So we constantly doing and producing this type of private articles for high-level guys. After this study group, I also became friends with Martin Kosloff, who is a double super bracelet winner. And he's also a mathematician. His mind also uh, uh, works in a very similar way to mine. And we also work together in ways like, you know, to, to do these things. Uh, when I was approached uh, by DMB Poker about the book, um, I started writing it. And I immediately jumped into the, um, the most advanced stuff. And they actually stopped in my tracks and were like, you know, uh, it would be better if you can make an introductory chapter 
because otherwise people will be clueless about what the hell is this guy talking about, right? So I went back to do this introductory chapter. I was also simultaneously creating the software, the GTO poker software that I just mentioned to you that helps breaking down the data, showing it in a graphical way. And what I did was using all of the charts and uh, from my software and put them into the book. And yeah, just having all of this experience with charts, charting data, all that came before it just got me to the point where I was able to put everything beautifully so that people will be able to understand. Because yeah, it's, it's so much data. Uh, you have no idea like how many millions of rows of you know raw data that I've been studying um, to produce this. But when you see it in the chart, uh, you have pie chart that's just breaking down in colors and you know, just give you a couple numbers. Uh, it's so much easier to absorb that for for students. And yeah, um, I've been using the software for my own private students for a long time now. Uh, software hopefully will be available uh, soon for the public, but for now it's something that I use privately uh, to study with my students. And I use a lot, a lot of that in, in the book. I talked to, for instance, Andrew Lichtenberger and some others who say that they can visually absorb the information in like a grid very easily because of all their practice, I guess. Is that something that you see a lot where somebody can just kind of just like gulp the the 13 by 13 grid and the shadings in it and just like kind of internalize it almost like it was a chess position? Definitely. I think that's an advantage actually. No limit has or no limit Omaha because we can represent the data, the, the, the hands in this grid. And it actually helps me sometimes when I'm visualizing the hand, uh, I try to think about my opponent's range and I try to visualize the grid and the colors and be like, okay, these portions of the range are gone. These portions of the range he probably raised with, so they are also gone. It's just so much easier creating more you know, unique charts, like the, the concept of equity buckets that I developed for the book, which I think is groundbreaking. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it before. And this concept of equity buckets, what it does is you just take every single hand for each one of the players in the hand and you categorize it given the equity it has. So if the hand has over 75% equity, it's a strong hand. If the hand has 50 to 75% equity, it's going to be a good hand. A weak hand will have 33 to 50% equity. And then a trash hand will have less than 33% equity. So you have four categories. And then you take each hand and given the equity it has against the opponent range, you put it in one of these buckets. And then you see the pie chart in my book and you can very easily see like, okay, half this player's range, here is trash. So I can just bet so, you know, so frequently here because you know, it doesn't matter if I make a min bet, half his range is trash, he's going to be forced to fold it. And so now what I actually visualize when I'm playing is these equity buckets. Uh, you just try to see okay, how much of each one of these buckets his range has. So I don't have to think about the exact combos, but just have a rough idea of, okay, he did, in this board, he's going to have a ton of strong hands. So this red section of his pie chart is going to be so massive. And I just cannot bet so many hands here. I have to be very passive. And stuff like this it really helps me at least. And I think it also has helped my students a lot uh, thinking about this equity bucket. So you don't have to think about each combo individually or even have to count combos because that's just so much work and it's almost impossible to do when you are when you're actually playing. Yeah, I agree. Because 13 by 13, that's almost three times um, the size of a chessboard, right? Eight by eight. It's like so many different cells. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that you go from like this square, this many, many squares of a grid, and then you take it to more basic circle, just a, 
a, a pie chart. Yeah, pie chart. Yeah, pie chart with only four colors. And yeah, it simplifies things so much for post-flow play. Now you're not thinking, oh my God, how many combos of this and that? He has no, just, uh, you know, trash, good and strong and weak hands. How many does he have? A ton, a lot. Because at the end of the day, what is important also is you need these specifics to develop a post-flop strategy. I know you have to bet big or small, bet high frequency or check a lot in the board. What you really need to know is just how these equities are distributed. And if you can visualize, again, that his range is very polar, for example, that is made of a few really strong hands and a bunch of trash, then you probably um, should not be putting a large bet there. For example, in pair boards, okay. In a pair board, uh, big blind versus imposition, continuation betting situation. The big blind will have a bunch of trips. Like let's say the flop is six, six, seven, right? The big blind will have a bunch of six, seven combinations that are offsuit six X that he defends that now have trips that are very strong. Besides the trips, he's going to have a bunch of trash. So the big blind range is composed by a lot of trash hands that are, I don't know, like nine high, uh, you know, a eight, a nine three suited that now have nothing on this board, right? So a bunch of queen two, queen five, so many trash hands, but also has a bunch of really strong hands that are six X trips or better, right? So now the in-position player has to be very careful. So he shouldn't be betting big in a pair board because now you're betting large, a large bet size into range that is polarized. That only benefits the big blind. You are putting a lot of money and he falls when he has air. And he raises you when he has a strong hand, right? Because he has a lot of six X in his range. So what you should do in a pair board is bet small, like a mean bet, right? You can go for a mean bet. And now you're forcing out of the range all of these trash hands that have absolutely nothing to do. All of these queen high, jack high, nine high. Just check fold those for a mean bet. And now he's forced to take an action and reveal the strength of his hand when he actually has strips and check raises you with those hands. So that gives you a lot of information and it becomes so much easier for you to play the spot, right? But you just mean bet when he check raises, you call with hands that have like potential factor equity or equity or whatever and uh, that are strong by, uh, by themselves. And you just fall, you know, whatever it is that uh, doesn't cut it. So understanding these equity distributions and how they work is, is what really need to do, not really counting combos, but just understanding the overall structure of the range. Yeah, that's a great example. And I think that that's one example that for some reason people kind of tend to gravitate towards. I think they they study a lot of like paired board situations and sometimes people come to the conclusion that you should do a lot of exploiting there with a lot of check raising from the big blind to kind of test whether or not the in-position player will be prepared for that strategy. But I got to ask, like in more general, what do you think causes the most counterintuitive results of the flop families? Like for somebody who's played a lot of poker, but hasn't studied a lot of poker, which one would they just have their mouth open? Like, oh my God, I can't believe these results. Let's say the flop is, let's say early position with 20 B-blanks, right? I uh, mean, race, tournament, and the B-blank calls. And the flop is ace, king, king, mm-hmm. right? Ace, king, king. What do you think is the correct uh, strategy for the in-position player when the big blind checks? So this board, ace-king-king, is actually a high checking frequency and a small bet size. Uh This is one of the spots that is counterintuitive, right? Because you might be thinking, well, ace-king-king definitely favors uh, in-position, right? He has all of the aces, all of the pocket kings, all of the ace-king combinations, right? So the in-position player should have a a massive advantage in this flop. So that confuses people. Uh, it tends to uh, make you think that you want to be maybe using a big bet size and maybe betting at a high frequency. 
But it turns out that, again, this board is so polarizing for the big blind that his range is pretty much a king, an ace, and the rest is absolute trash, right? Maybe if you got shots, that's it. So the range for the big blind, this creates a shift in the equity distribution where now uh, the big blind range is the player with a more polarized range. Now the in-position player, now he has actually, in fact, a lot of hands that are happy to check it down and get the showdown. He has a bunch of uh, pocket nines, pocket jacks, pocket queens, you know, hands that want to get the showdown, even an ace. Even if you have like, um, I don't know, ace-10 on this board, mm-hmm. you don't want to bet and get checked raised because the is going to have a bunch of king X and then air. And that would be significantly different than, for instance, an ace-king-queen flop. Exactly. An ace-king-queen flop. Now you want to go for a, a larger bet size. You want to go for at least half pot in this situation, right? So these type of situations, they, yeah, they are, they are very different and sometimes uh, surprise people because they are kind of counterintuitive. You're like, okay, I have a massive advantage on ace, king, king. Yeah, but you have such a massive advantage. Your opponent has nothing. Also, if you check back, you allow him to make a second best hand sometimes. You allow him to also to start bluffing, right? So maybe now that the bibling has so much air, when you check back this ace, king, king board, you allow him to start bluffing because he turns some backdoor equity and you check back with a full house, right? Now he starts blasting into you because he thinks that you're capped because you check back, which you are not. There are many different things that people uh, really need to put attention to because the devil is in the details. <laughs> For example, sometimes I've seen uh, students or coaches actually mention that you should be, let's say you open from early position and you get called by the bottom right now. If you open from early position, you can still continuation bet a lot. But if you open from the cutoff and you get called by the bottom and you are heads up again, now you should be checking a lot. So some people might run a simulation, cutoff versus bottom, and be like, okay, I should be checking a lot when they're out of, out of position. But then they apply that also to the situation when they're under the gun and they, they get called by the bottom. And the situation is much different because the range is in play. Training by trial and error doesn't work for poker because, again, you have 22,100 flops. And then if you multiply that by all the situations, you're going to have big blind versus bottom, small blind versus big blind, bottom versus cutoff, UTG versus hijack, so many different situations. Do you really think you can try them all? And then if you multiply it by the hands, you can have so many hands and then you multiply it by every single flop. If you just try it out in this software, one hand, one flop, one situation. Yeah, you tried it and then you learned something. You think you can really extrapolate that a lot? Mm, not so easy. So, well, at least in my opinion, I think it's better for you to try to understand poker, you know, the concepts. For example, the stuff that I just explained, pair boards, that's small. Why? Because this and that. Not just doing it a bunch of times until you finally realize, oh man, maybe I should be betting small in this situation, right? Uh, but what happens when you change the variables? Then, well, if you really understand what's happening in the spot, you can also mentally switch or shift these equity buckets, this pie chart in your in your mind. You're like, oh, okay, this situation now looks so much more like this other one. So it probably plays similarly, right? And it turns out it does. One of the most important parts of your book is you write that the most important game theory concept is that GTO poker is not about balance. It's about exploitation. Now, for a lot of people, that, does, that doesn't make any sense. They think of those as opposites. <laughs> so can you unwrap what you meant by that? Uh, GTO equilibrium, equilibrium strategies arise when two players are maximally exploiting each other. Let's say the solver starts running a simulation in a single spot. And then it starts to adjust 
the player's ranges and strategies combo by combo, little by little, right? So if I do this, the other player does that, he does that, I do this, and this, if the solver does this millions of times and just so many iterations, right? So what happens is that it gives you a solution for a spot when you're playing up against a perfect opponent who's adjusting perfectly to whatever you are doing. And this is it. So GTO is perfect play against GTO. It just uh, doesn't give, doesn't leave any holes in your strategy because it adjusts to exploit your opponent while protecting yourself against your opponent counter-exploitation, mm-hmm. right? But this should be a two-ways thing, right? If your opponent is also counter-exploiting you and adapting, you should be careful and be balanced. But if your opponent is not going to be counter-exploiting you, if he is not aware at all of what you are doing, then you can just go max exploit and not care so much about being counter-exploited because it doesn't matter. Your opponent is unaware. So yeah, equilibrium arises when you are exploiting somebody who's also exploiting you. That's equilibrium, that's GTO. But GTO against somebody who is not GTO is just max exploit him. You know, just go for max value against him every time. If you know that this guy is so bad that he's a calling station, he's not folding, Right, so you have top pair. You just go for you know like large bets three three times every single time. It doesn't matter. And when you have nothing, you can just bet small. If he has nothing, he falls. If he has something, he calls. They just give up. And that's such an exploitable strategy you can apply. But again, he's probably going to be unaware if he just calls every single time. You can just you know that he is a calling station. Just go for max value when you have it. Bet small when you don't have it, and then give up. And Something like that will, will work a lot of the like nine out of ten times against bad players. And you should be just keep keep hammering on them because that's where most of the money is. I love that explanation. And you know, I really feel like it clicked for me a little bit when you said that if you because like I know from playing with like HRC and stuff that like you can, you know, sometimes click on something and you get like some bananas result because of the the exploit that they make to your exploit and then you keep clicking on the button and then you circle back to the original solution and it's like actually seeing those that it's this active process of iterations um can make you more respectful of the process rather than just go to the end point and then you don't see everything in between yeah and, and knowing gto is what helps you uh, exploit better for example what i just mentioned about the blind versus blind play where if a small blind limbs, the big blind should be isolating 40 plus percent of his hands. And if you know as a fact that the big blind is not because it's very passive, you can, again, just max exploit by limping a ton of weak hands and then raising your strong hands because, well, your strong hands want to raise to build the pot because he's not raising himself. You will not be able to limply raise that much. So better raise yourself with your strong hands and limp with the weak ones. And that's an exploitative play that I will be applying every single time against weak players when I'm blind playing blind versus blind. So I'm not trying to play GTO, but I start GTO so that I understand how the situation should be approached. And then if I know my opponent has leaks, I know very well how to adapt to get max value out of his leaks. Yeah, that's a great example for sure. And then I think the important thing for people to realize is that when you say that you're going to limp with your weak hands and you're raised with your strong ones, it doesn't mean that you're doing those things in a pure 100% strategy. It means you're just calibrating it in a certain way, depending on the strength of your of your opponent. Exactly. I will be adjusting and adapting to my opponents. Now, personally, I think I actually not as good at exploiting as some other players are because I'm really good at finding the equilibrium. Like, okay, I know this, uh, 
um, very close to what the software would do in this spot. And then sometimes, personally, I, this is probably of mine that I fail to adapt uh, to my specific opponent sometimes. While some players are really, really good at just exploiting, exploiting, exploiting. And yeah, just different styles. I think the best players in the world right now are the guys who understand equilibrium so they can be unexploitable when they're playing against other tough opponents. But at the same time, they are very, very capable of exploiting their opponent leagues and then just finding those leagues and then attacking them and getting max value every single time. Guys like Stephen Chilwick are just such, a, a, you know, a good examples. Ape styles are great examples of this. They are very theoretical players. They have put in the hours of starting with solvers, but they also can adapt uh, to their uh, specific opponents. There are many parts to become good at poker. So one of them is, uh, yeah, in my opinion, study, putting in the hours, but execution is everything. So it doesn't matter as much if you are like, you know, good in theory, but are you really good to perform? It's not as easy as before. You're like 10 years ago, you could just know a, the fundamentals of poker and make a million dollars in the first year because uh, games were so much softer. You had the United States online before, before Black Friday, all of that. And now it's a bit, you know, tougher. It's still not impossible. The poker dream, I think, is still alive. But uh, you need to know that if you really want to go uh, out there and become a professional poker player or, you know, just become really good at this, you will have to put in the hours. And both, you have to put in the hours studying and you also have to put in the hours at the tables and play and become good at playing, not only studying. You need to do both. I recommend the ratio for players who are studying, who are starting with poker to study 80% of the time they want to devote to poker and play 20%. And then gradually start putting more hours into play until you get to a point where you are actually really good at the game. When you are actually beating the game, now you want to be playing 80% of your time and only study 20% of your time so that now uh, you just keep uh, improving if you just move to 100% play, you will halt. You will get to a halt. And then, again, uh, you will fall behind. So I recommend getting to 80% play time and then 20% of your poker time will be for the study just to keep you ahead of the curve. Yeah, fascinating breakdown. That's a question that people ask all the time about chess as well. So, yeah, that's, um, that's some good insight. Of Obviously, it differs a little bit from player to player, but the overall average percentages that you're mentioning it's um yeah really really interesting and um yo i mean this has been so amazing i've really enjoyed having you on the show honestly like the visual depiction of math and game theory in your book really ties into a lot of what i'm doing with my podcast which is to kind of merge like the mathematical with the more creative so it was really a guest that i had on my list from the beginning and i'm so happy that you were able to come on and also that you've Pick a hand eight deuce offsuit because honestly, it would be really difficult to find a good <laughs> hand with that. <laughs> yeah, no, not a lot of people will pick a hand like that, I guess. So uh, thank you very much, Jennifer. I'm, I'm very excited. To be honest, I, I'm thrilled. Uh, you are such a, a big personality, in, in not only in poker, but also in chess. I'm a big chess fan. And I've seen your commentary in, in some of you know, um, the chess shows and stuff like that. So being a part of this is really exciting for me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And yeah, thanks. Where's the best place to pick up modern poker theory? Uh, well, I'm thinking Amazon is probably the easiest for everyone, amazon.com or in the DMB Poker website, uh, dmbpoker.com as well. Uh, they ship it, I think, worldwide. I'm not sure. At least the States and Europe, I know they do. So. 
It's really a book that you want a hard copy with because of all the charts and the colors. I would highly recommend, you know, if you do get it for your Kindle just because you want to travel with it, that's one thing. But, you know, you should get a hard copy if you're trying to decide. I wanted it to be different than other poker books. Like, I'm not that narcissistic that I needed to have my picture in the front page of the book. Like, uh, they wanted me to, you know, to be like that because most players have, you know, their, their picture in the front cover. And I, I told them, you know what, I would like to have a more modern, different type of cover. You can put my picture in the back or it's, so you don't even have to put it there. I, I, don't, I didn't really want it. It's really definitely a book to get a hard copy for. Um, and you're at GTO Poker, where you can follow you on, you know, Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, all of the different places. Stay tuned on your progress and your website that's going to end up accompanying the book eventually. Michael Acevedo on 8 Deuce Offsuit. Also, shout out to Stevie Chidwick, who actually played the hand, but it changed so much in Acevedo's life. And, you know, for the benefit of the poker world, as we now have this book, this incredible book that we can learn to um, play and understand poker better. Cheers. Thank you. And thank you guys for, you know, listening to this podcast. I really appreciate having you around. Bye. Thanks for listening to ThePokerGrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve Yeah, I got talent